Welcome to Skim This. This week, we got the economy's report card. And no surprise here, it's kind of a mixed bag. U.S. gross domestic product shrank for the second quarter in a row, heightening recession worries. We'll break down the economy's A's and F's and what this all means for your wallet. Also on the show, Skim This took a trip to Indiana, where lawmakers are debating a near-total abortion ban. We sat down with Vice President Kamala Harris when she visited the state to hear how the federal government is thinking about its next move on reproductive rights. We have to stand up right now and fight for a woman's right to choose with everything we've got, period. And later on the show, if this summer seems sweatier than ever, you're not wrong. We spoke to an expert about why heat waves need to be taken more seriously and how certain U.S. cities are coming up with new strategies to beat the heat. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Hi, everyone. It's Blake Lou Merwin, associate producer on Skim This. We're doing things a little differently this week. First, I'll be taking the mic from Alex for the next five minutes. And we're also focusing on one big chunk of headlines from the week. Everyone's favorite topic, the economy. We're going to start with this week's report on the country's gross domestic product. And remember, GDP is basically a measure of the overall size of the economy. To help us skim the report, we called Catherine Edwards, an economist at the RAND Corporation and a friend of the show. The U.S. economy shrank slightly in the second quarter for the months covering April to June. It had also shrunk in the previous quarter, January to March. And this time around, the second quarter, it was not as big of a contraction. Look, we know you've probably seen the word recession plastered all over your news feeds. And that's because one general definition of a recession is two consecutive quarters of negative growth. So are we there yet? Well, Edward says there's some nuance here because the various parts of the economy, which is made up of household spending, government spending, the investment of businesses and net exports don't move in the same direction all the time. Parts of the economy can grow while other parts shrink. In terms of this GDP report, Consumption still grew last quarter, but it grew at a slower rate than it normally does. Two thirds of our economy is household spending and it grew this past quarter. That's a really good sign because it's both the largest part and it's the part that tends to reflect household well-being the most. What fell was one part of business investment that comes from inventory. And it fell a lot because businesses had stocked up at the end of last year and so they've reduced how much they're buying right now because they have so much in their warehouse. And that's not typical in the U.S. economy. Businesses tend to keep their supply really tight. Jobs are another factor in the equation, and they're looking pretty OK right now. Unemployment is at a low of 3.6 percent and job openings are high. So that means we have a very strong labor market occurring as this contraction is happening. So this declaration of recession or not can't just be about the one number it has to be about the components they're in. I mean, we have some headwinds coming our way. Hopefully we can get around that. 
Basically, we're flirting with a recession. But according to Edwards and other economists, we're probably not there yet. And we should note, there's actually an official group of research economists from an organization called the National Bureau for Economic Research, who's responsible for making the call on whether or not we're in a recession. And it can take months for the group to decide as more data on the economy is released. Whether or not they'll say we're in a recession remains to be seen. But one thing is clear. Parts of the economy are slowing down. And that should make the Federal Reserve happy. Because it's been trying to rein in one part of the economic machine that's growing way too fast. Inflation. It's been doing that by raising interest rates. The latest hike came this week at another three quarters of a percent. The whole idea there? Make it more expensive for people to borrow money so they spend less. Which keeps prices from shooting up. There's one other piece of the economic puzzle you're going to be hearing about. Corporate earnings. The latest reports are starting to roll out from some of the country's biggest companies. And already it seems like a slowdown is in the works. But not across every industry. The drug company Pfizer beat Wall Street expectations in this last quarter. And Ford's profits were up too. But tech companies might not be looking so hot. Meta already reported its first ever yearly decline in revenue. And Google's parent company, Alphabet, also reported a drop in profits. We're at a pivotal moment in which we're transitioning from coming out of the pandemic and all of its incredible economic consequences and moving back into a post-pandemic economy. That transition has not been always smooth or flawless or without issue. But the question is, can we pull it off without having to go through a recession first? So, did the economy shrink? Yes. Are there reasons to worry about it? Also yes. But economists think it's too early to say we're headed for a huge downturn. And Edwards left us with some tips if you're stressed about the economic outlook. Never judge your own economic security by the status of others. And I think it's easy to feel intimidated or feel like you're doing something wrong because someone has saved more than you or like your friends graduated from college when you did, but now they have a house and that that like really erodes your sense of self. So don't let that enter your mindset. Make your decisions about you. If you're afraid you're going to lose your job, polish your resume, get your LinkedIn profile up to date. Just plan out what would you would do if you lost it. Like, where would you go? Would you move in with somebody? Would you sell something? You know, th start thinking about that stuff now so that if the worst does happen, you've thought about it. You don't want to be caught flat-footed. Focus on the inputs that you can control. Since Roe v. Wade was overturned one month ago, there have been 50 states of confusion over abortion rights. Twelve states, including Texas, Georgia, and Tennessee, have essentially banned the procedure. Meanwhile, in other states that have tried to ban it, like Utah and Louisiana, federal judges have actually stepped in and blocked those bans from taking effect. And then there are the states that are considering implementing bans. One such state is Indiana. Recently, Indiana has been in the headlines after it was reported that a 10-year-old rape victim sought an abortion in the state. 
because she couldn't receive the procedure in her home state of Ohio. Around the same time that her story was made public, lawmakers in Indiana introduced a near total ban on abortion. And that kicked off a special legislative session that began on Monday. Indiana is now the first state to call its lawmakers together to consider abortion legislation since Roe fell. That special legislative session is still underway, and dozens of people, from doctors to private citizens, have voiced their opinions about the proposed abortion bill. Indiana's lawmakers are hoping to bring it to a vote by Friday. And if it passes, the near-total abortion ban will go into effect on September 1st. And the skim was actually on the ground there this week. We joined Vice President Kamala Harris as she went to Indianapolis for a roundtable on protecting abortion rights in the state. This has created a healthcare crisis in America. And as has been said, Indiana has already been on the forefront of this very issue. We spoke to the vice president about the federal government's response since Roe v. Wade was overturned and what we can expect to see going forward. Here's our conversation. VP Harris, thank you so much for talking to us today. We want to start with the administration's executive order on abortion. What will the impact of that order be? And what do you say to those people who think it doesn't go far enough? So two of the big issues that are present right now among the many are we want to make sure that women know that they have a constitutional right to travel, interstate travel. So the executive order deals with that and reinforcing the right that women have and also then the executive order by extension and also through the work that's happening independently with the Department of Justice will ensure that we put in place protections and responses if there is an infringement on that right. Uh, There is also a big issue right now about the medication abortion and whether that medication is going to be in any way um, impeded in terms of the flow by any of these states. And so the executive order has made clear the FDA approved this medication 20 years ago. It is medically approved, and we are going to make sure that it is uh, available to people and not um, in any way prohibited based on what's happening in these states. And what would you say to people who think that things like making medication abortion available over the counter or doing abortions on federal land should have been included in that order? Are those things the administration is thinking about? So we are looking at a number of ways that we can ensure that women have access to the healthcare and the reproductive healthcare, including abortion care. Uh, We are looking at it from a context that also wants to make sure that we are not in any way through policies that are implemented at a federal level exposing women to greater liability and, God forbid, punishment, like so many of these states seem intent on doing. So that's how we're looking, and it's through that prism at a number of measures. And what's your message for people listening who feel frustrated by their state government's response since Roe v. Wade has fallen? What would you say to them? Well, let's level set. The United States Supreme Court just took a constitutional right that had been recognized from the women of America, took it. And we all need to stand up to these so-called leaders, these extremist so-called leaders in states around our country who are attempting to criminalize healthcare providers, attempting to punish women who are, who are passing laws and suggesting there should be no exception for rape or incest, who are really doing such great harm to the women of America. This is a healthcare crisis and it demands a response. Uh, 
that recognizes that now is the moment and the time to stand up, to understand we have 106 days to go until the midterm elections. We need to elect a pro-choice Congress. The president of the United States, Joe Biden, has said that he will sign legislation on the Women's Health Protection Act, but we need two more senators in the United States Senate so he can get to the point of doing that. We need to recognize local elections matter. In these states where they're criminalizing healthcare providers, pay attention to who you elect as your prosecutor, as your DA. Pay attention to the fact that in a lot of the states that are restricting a woman's right to make decisions about her body, they're also restricting access to the voting booth. And so who is your secretary of state matters? Who is your governor matters? All of these elections matter 106 days. And it is no small matter that right now, while these laws are being passed, who is in the position to actually pass a law and enforce a law matters at the local level, state level, and at the federal level. How is this administration thinking about restoring all-time low confidence in the Supreme Court and the judicial system? Well, I think that, first of all, um, this court has shown itself to be an activist court. And, um, And we certainly feel that it is very important that we as an administration and we as leaders restore a sense of confidence in the institutions that are the pillars of our democracy. I travel around the world. I have had conversations, over 100 conversations with prime ministers, presidents, and kings. And we as the United States hold ourselves out to be a leader as a democracy. Meanwhile, our United States Supreme Court just took a constitutional right from the people of America. So there is a lot of work to do to make sure that we are restoring confidence in our systems. And part of that is restoring confidence in the bodies that makes these decisions. And so that includes the elections that are going to take place this November. What do you want the Biden administration's legacy around reproductive rights to be? And what do you need to get there? We have to stand up right now and fight for a woman's right to choose with everything we've got, period. And last question, can we expect the administration to declare a public health emergency around abortion anytime soon? Well, we are taking a look at that, and um, there are a lot of details about what that would involve, including the fact that public health emergencies, as declared in the past, have been on communicable diseases, of which, of course, this is not. We don't want to declare something and then it is a temporary fix but gets thrown out by a court. Because, frankly, we don't want to set women up for an expectation that something is going to actually be a cure to the problem and then it ends up being thrown out and it just makes people feel even more overwhelmed about whether the system is working for them. So we're, we're weighing and balancing it. But there's no question this is a healthcare crisis. There's no question. VP Harris, thank you so much. It's good to be with you. Thank you. Every summer, most of us hope for warm temperatures and sunny days. But this summer has been shattering those temperature records. If you've pulled out your iPhone, you've probably seen temperatures in the 90s or even over 100 degrees depending on where you live. And while that's a good excuse to hit the beach, longer and more intense heat waves are one of the most problematic and underestimated results of human-caused climate change. In May, over 50% of the United States lived in a place where temperatures hit over 90 degrees. In May. 
In July, the whole state of Texas faced scorching temperatures that threatened the state's power grid. And cities like Denver, Austin, and Tulsa broke heat records over the last two months. And it's not just places that are expected to be hot that are seeing triple-digit temperatures. Last week, over 100 million Americans, or about a third of the country, faced dangerous heat waves from the northeast to the west coast. Meanwhile, across the pond, a major heat wave rolled through Europe last week. Death counts are still being estimated, but early reports say more than 1,000 people have died from heat-related illnesses in Spain and Portugal alone. And the United Kingdom, which isn't exactly known for its bright sunshine, shattered its all-time temperature records last week, which had scientists drawing parallels to a major heat wave that struck the Pacific Northwest last year. We'll get to that heat wave in a second. But here's why temperatures going up around the world is problematic. Number one, heat creates health problems and puts enormous stress on the body. Heat stroke, cardiovascular issues, and kidney failure are big concerns, especially for elderly people and young kids, and people who don't live in areas with cooling access. Two, extreme heat also dries out certain climates, increasing the risk of wildfires. And three, rising temperatures can also impact vital resources like food. Experts have warned that as summer gets longer in countries around the world, food-producing nations will deal with crop failure and shipping challenges. So all in all, heat waves can wreak havoc on our way of life and what we find at the grocery store. And here's the thing. Even though temperatures have consistently been rising, experts say a lot of U.S. cities aren't built for and definitely aren't prepared for scorching heat. Which brings us back to what happened in the Seattle area last year. At the end of June 2021, that area suffered through a heat wave infamously known as the Heat Dome. It was three days of record-shattering and life-threatening temperatures, reaching the highest ever recorded in the state at 118 degrees Fahrenheit. When the heat finally broke, 100 people died from heat-related causes. Really, risk comes down to, it can be your pre-existing, your personal conditions, but also your lifestyle. Anybody with cerebral vascular or circulatory pre-existing conditions, being very young, being very old, being pregnant, you can start seeing increases in accident claims at the low 80s. Like, people just get clumsier when it's hot out. That's Lucia Schmidt, an emergency planning coordinator with the Seattle Office of Emergency Management. And after last year's devastating heat dome, a city that had never really prepared for high temperatures doubled down on investing in new heat mitigation tactics. For Schmidt and the rest of her team, the first real step in beating the heat was messaging. People don't really take heat super seriously. A big part of it really is getting the message out there that heat impacts start a lot earlier than people think, that there are so many mitigating circumstances, how active you're being, what medications you're on, what your underlying conditions might be. And so getting the message out there to people that this is something that they need to take seriously. We've been working with the Weather Service. We've been working with Public Health Seattle King County to figure out how can we get the message out 
just so that people are aware that it's something that they do need to start thinking about and they should start thinking about before everyone else is thinking about it and buying up all of the, the box fans and AC units. The second step was to develop a plan to invest in cooling infrastructure. That plan got released earlier this summer, and Seattle and the surrounding areas are committing to add bus shelters in the hottest temperature areas, plant trees to provide shade cover, and build a network of volunteers to give out emergency heat information. Schmidt told us investing in this now will pay off big time in the future especially since heat waves are kind of the new normal. The best way to mitigate this over time is changes in our built environment. It's increasing the tree canopy. It's having better buildings that are more suited to our new climate. The way buildings are constructed around here is to retain heat, not to cool off. And so it's not just a matter of sticking an air conditioning in a community center if the community center is built with entire walls of south-facing windows. It won't be effective. We are fighting against Seattle's entire history of development here. We should also point out, heat waves disproportionately affect low-income communities. In fact, one report found that in areas with higher poverty rates, the temperature can be up to 7 degrees warmer compared to neighboring higher-income areas. That's because low-income residents often live in industrial areas with less trees and vegetation and more pavement. Those paved areas hold onto the heat and keep areas around them hotter for longer, also known as the heat island effect. Another report from the United Nations last year corroborated those findings and found that the urban heat island effect disproportionately affects low-income neighborhoods. To address that, Seattle's plan is trying to incentivize landlords in low-income neighborhoods to upgrade properties with more heat protection and add more water features in community spaces for people to cool off. We need to be creating public spaces that have cooling, which is an expensive and a very long-term investment. But we also need to start looking about how to bring cooler spaces to where people already are. People don't want to wait outside for the bus to go travel to a cool space. So how can we work with public housing to create a community room that has cooling or to set up misting tents outside of that building. Like, what are the ways that we can bring coolness to where people are? People would rather stay in their communities, stay with the neighbors they know, be able to go up to their apartment to change a diaper. They don't want to have to travel across town to find a place to be cool. Seattle isn't the only city that's focused on beating the heat. Phoenix, Los Angeles, and Miami have all appointed new chief heat officers tasked with thinking through cooling solutions. Some of those solutions that actually most cities can implement include upping the number of cooling centers and hydration stations, building more shade canopies, and ripping up paved areas that are unused. Cities can also coat pavement in a special reflective material that cuts heat absorption. As certain cities pave or repave the way, experts are begging all municipalities to take notice, especially cities that aren't traditionally considered to be hot. Because investing in keeping temperatures low isn't just the cool new thing to do. It's essential to saving lives and preventing worse outcomes from the most dangerous extreme weather in the United States. I think that we are more prepared this year than we were last year. And I think that we 
have identified strategies that we can deploy. I do think we are moving in the right way. I think what we are seeing is there are a lot of departments that are now realizing that this is an issue that they have a part in. Momentum is there. We are starting to see the gears moving. And now it's just a matter of allowing for our development to, to catch up with our climate. P.S. If you're facing high temperatures in your area, here are a few tips to beat the heat. Cover your windows with blankets or sheets to keep some of the sun out of your home during the day. And if you don't have air conditioning, keep those windows open and run fans to get air circulating. You can also mist yourself with cool or room temperature water or put a cold compress on the back of your neck. And if you're lucky enough to have air conditioning, but you have some friends who don't, throw a cool down party and have everyone over. But maybe don't serve alcohol, because staying hydrated is key when it's hot out. We'll also leave a link to other tips in our show notes. If you've been dying to head to a national park for summer vacation, it seems like you're not alone. Last year, 44 national parks set visitation records. Great Smoky Mountains National Park had 14 million visitors last year alone, and both Yosemite and Yellowstone saw huge surges in attendance following the pandemic. You would think that because there's so much space and the U.S. is so big, that there would be plenty of space there for everybody, but actually they're very, very crowded and it's becoming a little bit of an issue. That's Shannon Lowry, the content manager at Visit USA Parks and Untraveled. And she told us the U.S.'s national parks are being stressed from all sides, from overcrowding to recent devastating floods and wildfires. And all of that has created a less than ideal out-of-office experience for people visiting. So what we see is like a domino effect. So immediately in the park, you're going to see more people on the trails. Because there's more people, you're going to see more cars. You're going to see decreased parking availability, more traffic. It's going to take longer to get to access points on the trails and in the parks themselves. With more people, you're going to see more trash. You're going to see more animals like dogs and, and just all of the things that come along with that and all of the waste and stuff that you see with increased human and animal traffic. According to a study done by the National Parks Conservation Association, 85% of national parks have harmful air pollution caused by vehicle traffic that's unsafe for humans and native species. And the National Park Service, which usually manages around 70 million pounds of waste annually, has asked visitors to start managing their own human waste as it's polluting water systems in the parks. And overcrowding isn't just impacting the great outdoors. Lowry told us that towns around national parks are also feeling the crunch from more people showing up. Farther out in what we call the gateway communities, which are the cities that are closest to the entrances to the national parks, there you're going to see higher hotel motel rates because there are more people there. You're gonna see probably the hospitality teams in those towns are getting pushed to their limits because they're seeing exponential visitors that they haven't seen in years and they don't have the staffs to support that. And then likewise, you're going to see traffic on the roads and things like that. The hotels, campsite availability, all of that is being affected, not just the actual traffic 
on the trails in the parks and things like that. So if all this overcrowding sounds less than ideal, Lowry had plenty of suggestions on ways we can still get that outdoor fix without the crowds, people trying to get the pick for their Instagram, or having to manage our own waste. Her biggest tip was hit the national parks when it's a little out of the ordinary. We call it the shoulder season in travel between the actual off season and the actual on season. You have a few months or a few weeks in there where the weather can be iffy or the crowds can be iffy, but you at least have a better chance than say going to Yellowstone in like June, you know? The biggest piece of advice I have for people is looking into those shoulder seasons, doing your research for sure. Also being willing to go at unusual times. You might need to book a midweek trip. I went to Great Sand Dunes National Park in May and I went on a weekday and it was pretty much empty. She also reminded us that there are some incredible alternatives to the national parks that might even give you a better outdoor experience. In Utah, there's great state parks. There's actually Snow Canyon State Park, and they have red cliffs there. It's a beautiful desert. You're still going to get a lot of the same incredible rock formations and everything. In Wyoming, which is near the southern gateway town to Yellowstone, you have Hot Springs State Park, and you also have Wind River Canyon. There, they have really amazing scenic drives. You can go whitewater rafting. You can do a lot there without being able to actually go into Yellowstone. And as far as the East Coast goes, I think that people sleep on Cumberland Island National Seashore in Georgia, farther down in Florida. There's also Manatee Springs State Park. I think that the state parks, you see a little bit more of an immediate impact in the local community. A lot of times the rangers and stuff in state parks can take a little more time to talk to you, to give you a tour, to talk to you about the local area. You kind of get a little bit more of a personalized experience, I think. But if you're still dying to see Yellowstone or Yosemite for the first time, don't worry. Nobody needs to let go of their national park dreams, right? I mean, the national parks are, are there. They're going to be there for a long time. Just because you can't go to Yellowstone right now or you can't go to Yosemite right now doesn't mean that you'll never go. But maybe pick something else on the list and go there first. The important thing about visiting places like Yellowstone, going through natural disasters and stuff is, yes, they're gonna need to bounce back and they're gonna need to make back the visitor revenue that they've lost during the time that they've been closed. However, we need to be really mindful about how we bring people back in because those are communities that have been damaged and people should still be very cognizant of, of respecting those communities and letting them pick up the pieces and get back on their feet before they welcome people back. If everyone is willing to just be patient and practice leave no trace and be responsible travelers, then I, I think that we will be able to enjoy the parks for many more years to come. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our producer, Will Livingston, and our associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin. This episode was engineered by Ellie McAfee-Hahn and Andrew Calloway. And the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, check out the other podcasts from The Skim. 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9to5ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us. <laughs> <laughs>